Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. My mind, I've already escaped. Check the transmission and the brakes. Studied every word and tone for white lies. Search the dresser for his mask in disguise. They always try me on for size. But if you saw me now, would you question what he's done? Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of If You Saw Me Now, a song by folk singer-songwriter Gretchen Plus, a Cincinnati girl currently based in Akron. Gretchen is our featured Ohio Musical Artist of the Week, so stick around to the end of the podcast tell you a little bit more about her and let you finish listening to that song which is being released in a couple of weeks by the way that's right I'm your co-host Steve Yoder and with me as always is our award-winning journalist Paula Schleiss who spent the better part of 30 years at the Akron Beacon Journal hey everyone so This one gets a little complicated, eh? So complicated, I can't even tell you for sure whether this is a story about one or two completely different cases. Maybe three. There might be a murder in here, but maybe not. What I can tell you is this is one of the most unique mysteries you're ever going to hear. So buckle up, settle in, whatever you do to get ready. Okay, I'm settled and buckled up, so let's do this. Okay. Well, our story takes place in Circleville. That's about 25 miles south of Columbus. It's a small town along the banks of the Scioto River, just 12,000 souls back when our story begins in 1977. Definitely the kind of quaint community where everyone knows your name. But someone in town has been paying a little more than casual attention to what everyone has been doing. An anonymous letter writer, over the next decade or so, is going to launch a campaign of terror using his or her pen. When all is said and done, more than a thousand letters are going to be mailed to the residents of Circleville and the surrounding Pickaway County neighborhoods. It's a lot of letters. Letters that say they are being watched. Letters that reveal details of their lives. Some are hateful. Some are vulgar. All have accusations. Some against the letter recipient. Some tattling on someone else. Some even demanding that the letter recipient go hold someone else accountable for their bad behavior. I mean, some letters apparently hit close to the mark for the whole town is on edge. None of the letters have a return address. All are postmarked from Columbus. Most of them, not all but most, are written in a large block-style letter, clearly meant to disguise the writer's normal handwriting. 
Well, one woman in particular is going to bear the brunt of this phantom's obsession. Her name was Mary Gillespie, a mother, wife, and school bus driver for the Westfall School District. I know where you live, her first letter said. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified, and everything will be over soon. Oh, man. The ominous letter accused Mary of having an affair with a superintendent of schools, Gordon Massey, and the letter writer demanded she stop. Well, a second letter came, but Mary didn't tell anyone about either of them. She hid them and decided to simply start becoming more observant as she went about her day, hoping to spot the stalker. Well, that strategy ended because her husband, Ron Gillespie, got the next letter addressed to him. The letter writer ordered that he put an end to his wife's affair or die. Remember, we know where you work and know your red and white truck, the letter said. No one can help you. Think of your children and their future. Call the school board and report the truth after you finish your investigation. Again, your life is in danger. So now they're this this person is threatening the husband. Oh yeah, yeah. To make sure this affair stops. Oh yeah. Oh. Well, Mary, she insisted she wasn't having an affair, but it didn't matter. You know, this is a small town. The entire town is gossiping. Many of them had received personal letters from this phantom writer with accusations of the affair. So that's how they learned. Okay. And it appears Ron believed his wife. And the couple, they tried to ignore it all, but then came another letter. Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. This is weird. This is almost like this person is intimately involved with this family that knows that she's not admitting the truth. Exactly. Mm, This is wicked. Well, the phantom made good on his promise. Large signs started appearing around town, this time claiming the superintendent, Massey, was having a sexual relationship with a Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter. Horrified, Ron would get up in the morning before work and drive around town looking for these signs so he could take them down before the workday began. Well, Mary and Ron decided to sit down with a couple of family members and talk through the possibilities. They brought in Ron's sister, Karen, and her husband, Paul Freshour. They came up with a suspect that topped their list. I don't know who it was, but they sent this suspect some letters of their own and basically said, we know who you are, we know what you're doing, and stop it. And indeed, the letter stopped. So it made the Gillespies believe they had discovered the real identity of the letter writer. But this wasn't over. The next twist in this strange saga wasn't a letter. It was a phone call some months later. It rang in the Gillespie home on August 19, 1977. Ron was at home with his children. Mary was in Florida on a trip. Ron answered the phone. We'll never know what was said, 
but it was disturbing enough that Ron told his kids he was going to confront the letter writer. He grabbed his pistol, stormed out of the house, and drove away in that red and white pickup truck. Soon after, Ron Gillespie was dead. At an intersection not far from his house, his vehicle had struck a tree. He was found dead inside. Investigators determined Ron's gun had been fired once, but they could never find a reason for why it was fired, and they never recovered the bullet. He didn't die of a a bullet? I mean, he didn't have a gunshot wound? No, it was his gun. So the thought is he must have fired it. Okay. But the crash, it was ruled to be a genuine accident, and the cause of his death was internal injuries caused by the accident. So we can maybe assume that he fired from his vehicle and crashed in a chase, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not assuming anything. This this thing's crazy. Yeah, this is pretty weird. I mean, even if it was a real accident, that didn't mean it wasn't strange. A a post-mortem examination found Ron was drunk. His blood alcohol was one and a half times the legal limit. And that was weird because those who knew Ron said they never knew him to drink. And his children insisted he wasn't drunk when he left the house after that phone call. And still, that wasn't the end of it. The letter writer picked up Penn again. It appeared he or she was angry at not being given credit for Ron's death. They started sending letters to various residents and elected officials, insisting a better investigation be done, accusing the sheriff of a cover-up. Well, sometime later, Mary admitted to having a relationship with the superintendent. She insisted that it only began after the first letter had been delivered and after Ron was dead, which seems odd. Yeah, she that's a little gets weird. a letter accusing her of an affair before she has it, but after the letter, she goes and begins the affair she was accused of. Uh, 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 well, this letter, that's a good idea. I mean, Yeah, I that, that was odd. Yeah. Anyway, Mary, she stayed on her job as a school bus driver, and in 1982, the letter started again. The letters indicated the worst was to come. A couple of months later, on February 7, 1983, Mary was driving her bus route when she saw a poster on a fence post threatening her daughter. Mary stopped her bus and stormed toward the sign to pull it down. That's when she noticed the sign was attached to a box. She carried the contraption into the bus and opened it. She discovered a piece of twine inside, rigged to a loaded 25 caliber semi-automatic pistol. It was a crude booby trap that was meant to go off when Mary ripped down the sign, but Mary didn't yank the sign the way the culprit had intended, The trip line wasn't tripped, and the gun did not discharge. Investigators discovered that someone had made an attempt to file off the gun's serial number, but it was a bad job. The criminal lab easily revealed the numbers, and the gun belonged to Paul Freshour. That was the Gillespie's brother-in-law, his wife Karen, uh, the sister of Ron Gillespie, who had died in the truck crash. All right. Well... By now, Paul Freshour was divorced from Karen. They had had a vicious divorce battle in which Paul had actually won custody of the kids in the house. Karen, meanwhile, moved into a trailer on Mary Gillespie's property. 
Well, police paid Paul Freshour a visit, and he insisted he knew nothing. The gun, he said, had been stolen. He said he kept it hidden in his garage, but since he never used it or checked on it for years, he never noticed it had been missing. Then police gave Freshour a handwriting test. Now, Sheriff Dwight Radcliffe, he's going to get a lot of criticism for the way this test is given. Basically, Freshour is given a copy of a letter from the Phantom Rider and told to try and duplicate what he sees. Uh, okay. So he does it. And Sheriff Radcliffe says, wow, that looks like a lot like the original letter. You must be its author. Uh. So he arrested Fresh Hour for attempted murder. Well, Radcliffe then went and told the press, we've arrested him. By the way, he's admitted to writing these letters. Well, Fresh Hour says, well, that's a lie. He had never confessed. He said, if I confess, show the recording where I confess. Right. Something Radcliffe couldn't do. Fresh Hour also had an alibi for the day of the booby trap attempt on Mary's life. They were able to pin down the time when the fence post sign had been put up, and Fresh Hour had witnesses to his whereabouts for those hours. But then Fresh Hour went and pleaded innocent by reason of insanity. Years later, he would explain this by saying his attorney told him the case was stacked against him. He would probably get off a lot easier if, he, if they went this direction. He took his advice and did so. But Fresh Hour had a change of heart. Right before the trial, he said, no, I'm innocent. I'm playing innocent. And he did. Well, it didn't help. The trial for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie began in late October 1983. And Fresh Hour was convicted and given the maximum a 7 to 25-year sentence. Did, did the letter stop after he was arrested? I'm glad you asked. Oddly, while Fresh Hour was serving time in prison, the letters continued. Oh. And like before, they were postmarked from Columbus, a feat Fresh Hour certainly couldn't manage from his jail cell in Lima, Ohio, 90 miles away. Authorities kept insisting Fresh Hour must have found a way to continue his terror campaign from jail. So Fresh Hour was placed in solitary confinement and denied access to writing materials. The letters continued. The jail warden even signed a letter saying there is no way Fresh Hour could have mailed or coordinated the mailing of these letters, could not have had anything to do with it. Authorities back in Pickaway County said, oh, yeah, he's still responsible. I think they have the wrong guy. Yeah. Well, ready for another twist? Yes. In 1990, Fresh Hour was denied parole at his first hearing, even though the letter writing in Circleville had continued. And a few days later... He got his own letter from the Phantom Rider mocking him for this. Oh, that's got to be horrible. Now, when are you going to believe you aren't getting out of there, the letter said. I told you two years ago, when we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all? No one wants you out. (sighs) So he's getting letters. Right. It doesn't matter. He's still in jail. In 1994, an investigative journalist by the name of Martin Yant, who was convinced Fresh Hour was innocent and had been framed, coaxed the TV show Unsolved Mysteries to do a story about the case. Well, as they began preparing the episode, their offices in California received a postcard. Forget Circleville, Ohio. Do nothing to hurt Sheriff Radcliffe. If you come to Ohio, you El Sickos will pay. And it was signed, 
the Circleville Letter Writer. Oh, man. (laughs) They don't scare easy. They finished and aired the show anyway. And the show offered a new theory about the booby trap. There was another suspect to consider. You know, Paul Freshour's divorce from Karen was a nasty one. After all, he'd gotten the house and the kids. And many speculated that Karen would have known where the pistol was kept in the garage. It was also revealed the jurors were never told something that might have spun this case off in another direction. Another bus driver had told police she had seen a yellow El Camino parked on the side of the road next to the booby trap that almost killed Mary Gillespie. The driver was a sandy-haired man that did not match Fresh Hour's description. And notably, Karen's brother owned a yellow El Camino. Well, Fresh Hour served about a decade of his sentence. He was finally paroled in May of 1994. He maintained his innocence. He eventually even started an online blog in which he accused Sheriff Radcliffe of covering up corruption, and he accused other area residents of horrific crimes, including child molestation by a county official and the murder of a pregnant mistress by another official. Oh, man, this does have a lot of twists and turns. Yeah, well... And Fresh Hour, he also believed the original Circleville letter writer was not the same people responsible for the booby trap, that they were two completely separate things, that the booby trap conspirators probably just used the history of that letter writing campaign, you know, to muddy the waters. The original writer, he believed, was a man named David Longberry. Longberry was a school bus driver who worked alongside Mary Gillespie. And he was angry that she had rebuffed his romantic advances. The letter started a couple of weeks after she turned him down. Remember that thread about spreading his accusation on CBs? Yeah. Well, bus drivers use CBs. Right. Well, in 1999, Longberry became a wanted fugitive after raping an 11-year-old girl. He fled to El Paso, Texas, and committed suicide We would not know that for a decade because it would take that long to identify his body. And just to keep your head spinning, I'll toss out that there were suspicions that there may have been a third letter writer in there, someone who took advantage of what was going on to have his say in the affair of Mary Gillespie and Gordon Massey. That's because a handful of the letters sent to Mary were in a normal script and signed with a W. That was not at all like the large block letters used in most of the other correspondence. Well, anyway, Paul Freshour died in 2012 at the age of 70. So we've got at least one, likely two, maybe three different letter writers. We got a death that might be a murder, probably isn't, but is still connected to a weird phone call and a fired gun. We've got a booby trap for which one man went to jail, but might have actually been the work of two or three other people who wanted to frame someone, and we've got a dead rapist identified a decade after a suicide in Texas who just might have been the guy who started it oh, all. Oh, man. You know who's going to love this case? The green local school bus drivers listen to us. Oh, yeah? Yeah. They listen to us, and they're going to love this <laughs> They're going to appreciate this, huh? <laughs> Maybe this is a good time to bring on board tonight's armchair detective. Well, for tonight's armchair detective, we have Joe Thomas of Akron, Ohio. Joe Thomas is a deputy metro editor at the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, Joe. Hi, Paula. 
thanks for being here with us to uh, talk through this. You know, I went to you and I said, I need somebody who can do some heavy lifting because this case is really complicated. So I needed a a pro on the case, and that's why I went to you, Joe. I know you can uh, help us talk through some of these things. So I know there's so many different places to start. How about Ron Gillespie? Is that a murder or an accident? I think that it's a suspicious death, to say the least. Um, I can't say for sure. Again, first of all, um, when you asked me to be an armchair detective on this, one of the first things I discovered was this case has armchair detectives all over Ohio, all over the country. Um, It's a very popular case, and a lot of people to this day are still trying to to crack this one. And, and the question of Ron Gillespie's death, the circumstances around that are so bizarre. They're just weird. Uh, how do you have this person who answers the phone and rushes out and says he's going to confront the person who's been tormenting his family, get not too far from his home in his car, having his gun fired up, but nobody knows where what happened to that gunshot, who it was aimed at, and who even, I'm not sure if we even know who pulled the trigger. We also have his car crashing into a tree. He dies in that crash. And this man who everyone who was around him and knew him and loved him said this man was not a drinker. He is, what was it, almost twice the um, legal limit over right. for um, blood alcohol level? Things do not add up in that crash. And yet, you know, when police and sheriffs came out and investigated this, they ruled it an accident. Now, at some point, there was a suspect that they talked about, but they ruled this person out. And in all the tellings and retellings that I've looked at on this, nobody says who that suspect is. They just move along. Uh, it's worth revisiting to figure out what happened there. So let, let's talk about Paul Freshour, because obviously he is very central to this case. What are your thoughts on that? Is he, is well, he guilty of something? I, I don't think that we can rule out the possibility that he may have carried some amount of guilt in the intimidation of um, Mary Gillespie. Was he the Circleville writer, though? That's a question in and of, a, in and of itself, because certainly the evidence that put him away bears connection to the Circleville writer. Now, he has a lot of defenders out there who say, absolutely not. This man was not Circle the Raider. This man was not out to kill Mary Gillespie. So many people insist that. Yet he was put away for it. So let's go back to what his connections to what the, to the Circle of the Raider may have been. Could he have been that Raider? Consider first that he drove every day from Pickaway County, which is some 25 miles south of Columbus, to his job at the Anheuser-Busch Brewery, which is near the northern edge of Columbus. So back in those days, that commute likely took about an hour each way, given that the max on the highways was 55 miles per hour, and he's going through heavy traffic in the middle of Columbus. Um, But look at the volume and frequencies of the letters postmarked from Columbus. They had to be mailed by somebody who went there quite a bit, just like Paul Freshour did. Oh, I, that oh, is excellent. I hadn't thought of that. But, yeah, somebody who's making that hour trip all the time. Also, I don't know if Fresh Hour was known to use a CB radio or not, but remember that uh, these devices were at the height of their popularity during the late 70s and through the mid-80s. 
lots of people, not just truck drivers and bus drivers, had them in their cars and pickups. And two hours a day driving into and out of one of the state's thickest traffic corridors provides the opportunity to, first of all, hear what's going out there on the roads, but also in the in the uh, less busy stretches to hop on and chatter. Now, we know that CBs come into play, that the Circle Little Writer might not just have been a writer, but also somebody who got on commercial radio and and broadcast these messages about the neighbors in Circleville. So it's not a far stretch of the imagination to think that he could have been involved along those lines. One of the other things I noticed as I looked at the cases, a lot of people just overlook or completely discount their fresh hour at some point in this prosecution for the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie was prepared to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. And the reasons for that still are not entirely entirely clear to me. And though he switched back to a not guilty plea, he at least briefly considered the line of defense that essentially says, I did it, but I wasn't myself when I did. Right. Right. And I think his, his excuse was that his attorney had kind of pressured into the, him into that. And I know that that happens, but it is if it hasn't happened to you, it is really hard to understand why somebody would even think about pleading guilty to something they didn't do. Right. And then there's also the use of his gun in the booby trap. As you pointed out, after his release from prison, he began a blog to boost his effort to persuade the FBI to track down uh, Ron Gillespie's tormentor. But in that blog, he also apparently spread rumors about alleged misdeeds by people in the Circleville area. And isn't that essentially what the Circleville writer or writers were doing all along? I thought of that, too. The blog is still online. I can't remember whether I said that. And when I was looking at it, I'm like, this is like a letter writing campaign for the modern age. So you have his gun, you have his access to Columbus, and you have the fact that even once he's out of prison, it's going and doing that same thing over and over. These things, I think, working in favor of those who say we have to look at him as a suspect. But then I think there's another possibility if he was involved that might explain why he would have been involved. Could he have been part of a tight circle of people who were collectively the Circleville writer and each having roles to play in digging up dirt and scrawling out these letters and making signs and dropping the letters off in Columbus? Maybe that was his role in this circle of people. But we're talking about a massive body of uh, writing here in terms of the letters that were sent out. You said over a thousand were sent out to people, to neighbors in the community, and it basically crossed that whole Pickaway County area. That is a massive effort, and probably more than one person can do by themselves. And he could have been a part of that circle. And the other thought that crossed my mind about him was that maybe he was being controlled by the letter writer. Maybe he was being coerced into carrying out deeds on their behalf, either because he feared threats to his family or because he didn't want his own secrets exposed. You know, we did see the letters continue after he went to prison. And then there's that curious letter that he got that said, we told you when we set him up, we keep him up, which means perhaps he had been in communication with the Circleville writer maybe all along or at some point in time. And if that theory is true, Fresh Hour may have gone to his grave knowing the writer's identity 
And he was willing to do time rather than, than rat out anyone just in order to protect his family. Because if that's the case, the writer or the writers were certainly powerful and dangerous people. You know, the letter that he got in prison struck me for a couple of things. One, the writer, you know, did definitely sound like he had contacted him before or had talked with him before. It didn't sound like a letter that should have been a surprise to him, you know, the the way it was stated. The other thing that struck me was the letter that went to the Unsolved Mysteries TV show. That definitely could not have been him because the show reflected well on him. They interviewed him and they were trying to advance the theory that he was framed. So he definitely didn't write that letter. So it sounds like... No, he did not. The El Chico's letter that they they read off on Unsolved Mysteries was... And, and that one, that those two words for some reason just stick out to me too, UL sickos, um, which don't seem to go along with any of the other writings that I'd seen up to that point. But um, I think that that episode was a turning point for for Paul Freshour because uh, here was somebody who was willing to believe him, and they got the national stage to do that. And you do have a lot of people backing this theory that he was set up, and. For as much evidence as I've talked about that might point to the fact that um, here's your guy, uh, Martin Yant has done a heck of a job of digging up so much that says not so fast. And I think it's fair to be cautious because it is really easy to want to blame somebody and leap over evidence in order to get there. Do you... What do you think of the idea of him being framed? I mean, he did go through a nasty divorce. There was somebody else they identified with a yellow El Camino uh, at the site of the um, booby trap that was meant to hurt Mary Gillespie. I mean, could could he have been framed? I mean, do you give that any credence? I think you look at the handling of the case and also take, take a step backward to the handling of, of Ron Gillespie's death and you have to wonder how could it not be? Um, he, he was, there's no other way to say this. He was railroaded in court. Yeah. How can any judge allow Sheriff Radcliffe's goofy handwriting test to be admitted as evidence? Whether Fresh Hour was guilty or not, it appears that he was deprived his right to a fair trial. Um, and, and like you said, he has claimed his own defense lawyer was in, was in on the effort to put him away. So that does not seem far-fetched, given the bizarre circumstances of this case. Everything is on the table. That handwriting test, I just laughed. I'm like picturing the sheriff showing him the letter and saying, okay, copy this exactly, and then saying, oh, you, good job. You copied it exactly. Now we're going to arrest you. How about David Longberry? We threw that in at the end of our story because... It was strange. I mean, it's definitely something worth considering. Could David Longberry have been one of the letter writers, whether it was conspiracy or not? Could he have started the campaign or been a part of it? This is one of the areas of the case that I think is the most difficult, at least right now, to discuss because Longberry basically died a fugitive. He died with 
potential answers that could have told us a lot more about this case. We go back and he was discussed as, as, as somebody who was wanting a relationship with a married woman, a bus driver, a fellow bus driver, and and he was denied that opportunity. There, there's so much that we didn't we don't know about Longberry yet. I think this was where I was going with that. Right. And and the fact, but you can't deny his connections to to Mary Gillespie, and that he maybe knew of some sort of relationship there between the superintendent. I forget the the superintendent. Was it Gordon Massey? Is that his name? Yes, Gordon Massey. Okay. Yeah, I you know I guess uh, the one thing that I would point out is if this guy was guilty of raping an eleven year old girl. Yeah. It, it's easy to want to throw everything at him then. Like, oh, right, well, if he's a right. pedophile, then he must also be a letter writer. But those are two completely different things. You know, I spent 13 years as a national editor um, at the Beacon Journal, and and so it undoubtedly crossed my desk probably several times, sometimes that I wouldn't even have thought of. Um, it's because I deal with so many cases, um, or did back then, all across the country of just the bizarre, the up and down of crime and, and people who do bad things. Um, this case undoubtedly crossed my desk several times, but especially when Paul Freshour died back in 2012, this would have come back up in the news again. But I honestly don't recall this case. So when you, when you pointed it out to me and to take a look at this, I was like, wow. I mean, Everything about it, it has the appeal of a small town being ripped apart by, like you said, a phantom force or writer, somebody out there who is stirring up this frenzy. And it's crazy and it's ridiculous. And I think why it hits home for so many people is because they can imagine it happening to them right there in their own hometown. Well, I have no idea how that town is today, whether this has really settled down, but I hope it has. It would, You know, a lot of people feel, feel very close and very protective of their hometown, and it would be awful to have your hometown just riddled with this for decades, and I, I hope it's calmed down for them. I do, too. You know, Circleville is, I read about it, and you'll find it's actually probably a really pretty neat place. I mean... People are proud of that town. They have this annual pumpkin festival that is the pumpkin festival. And we're not, we're not talking about, you know, a small town fair. This is a big deal every year in that town. They have a lot going on down there. They're not that far from Columbus. So, again, there's a lot of people probably other than those who work at the Anheuser-Busch factory who drive into Columbus every day for their jobs and come back home at night. This is a, so, I mean, it, it's not as if this is a town that is hidden away from the world. There's easy access to this town, and it's a welcoming town as witnessed by their festival. It, but I, I do believe that they probably, to this day, there are many people who just want to get past the letters and the writer right. and, and the bizarreness of this case. Joe, thank you so much for, for being me. tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Joe mentioned that he sees a lot of articles past his desk. This is definitely a good reason to follow Joe Thomas on Twitter. I use him kind of as a local news filter. He links articles that range from cybersecurity to what happens to your vehicle when you hit a pothole. I think everybody in this area knows what that's <laughs> Timely. like. He's very informative. We will link his information on our website. 
All Thank right. you so much. Appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Joe. Well, that's it for tonight, campers. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and all of our episodes, just head on over to ohiomysteries.com. What? You already did that? Well, awesome. You've got this routine down, don't you? And if you got that routine down, you know what's coming next. This is the segment where I get to spotlight yet another wonderful Ohio musical talent. Gretchen Plus is a Cincinnati girl, but she's currently based in Akron, Ohio. And there are several opportunities for you to see her in Northeast Ohio because she is supporting the release of her brand new album, Daughter of the Broader Skies. On April 12th, she'll be in Akron at the Rialto Theater that's in the Kenmore neighborhood. On April 13, you can find her down in Worcester at Lucky Records. And the next day, on April 14, she'll be in Cleveland at the Music Box Supper Club. On social media, you can find her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also just jump straight to her website, but let me spell her last name for you because it's a little bit tricky. So it'll be www.gretchenplus.com. Got it? All right. Well, we got it. You'll find links to Gretchen and all of our previous musical artists on our website. But right now, let's turn that volume up, close your eyes, and enjoy Gretchen's new single, If You Saw Me Now. And we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery. This is how it always starts. She asked, is he gonna break your heart? I don't know, mama, I don't know God, I really hope so I haven't felt much in here I'm losing friends faster than myself in the mirror You and I would always search for higher ground Love was easier when you were still around saw me now, would you question what I've done?
This is how it always ends She asked, could you feel that way again? I don't know, mama, I don't know God, I really hope so Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.